What's up, Unusuals? Jim Martin here from the Unusual Buddha podcast and theunusualbuddha.com. Here to talk to you for a second about Anchor. Uh, it's the service I use to make this very podcast. Uh, first and foremost, it's free. Secondly, they give you tools you can actually record and edit your podcast either from your phone or from a computer. Uh, Anchor also helps with distribution of your podcast. Uh, they can get you on Apple and Spotify, all those. Uh, you can start making money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need all in one place. So check them out. It's anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to see what you create. What's up, Unusual Jim here from theunusualbuddha.com. Joined today with Dwayne Toops. He got to make it to this episode. Uh, we're joined today by guest Mandy Capehart. She's the author of book uh, Restorative Grief. So, uh, Mandy, how are you today? Hey guys, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, uh, uh, thank you for joining us. I know you're uh, you're busy. You're doing a lot of things, and uh, we we don't have we don't want to take up too much of your time here. But um, real quick, Mandy, what? Uh, how about you give us your intro? People that don't know you, how do you uh, tell them who you are and 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 what you do? Great question. So my name is Mandy Capehart. I'm an author and a speaker, as well as a grief coach uh, in Southern Oregon. I do a lot of different things all at once. I have a lot of hats because I'm also a podcaster, I'm an MC for a local women's group, and I'm a mom, and I love to work at wineries as well. So I have a lot of things going at any time, but the main theme of all of those things is that I love people, I love their stories, and I love to gather them together um, to share their stories and hold space for one another. So that in a nutshell is who I am. That's awesome. And uh, again, we're joined by Dwayne. Dwayne, I know you couldn't make the last one. Uh, Dwayne is my co-host. Dwayne, how about you give us a little uh, who you are? And uh, if anyone doesn't know, can we get an intro for you too? Sure. I am Dwayne Toops. I am also a lot of things, but unlike Mandy, I specialize in being as terrible at all of them as humanly possible. And in that regard, I am quite exceptional. (laughs) Uh, I do, I do my fair share of blogging, podcasting for the unusual Buddha, as well as, uh, on my own, um, some writing, poetry, art, um, anything creative. I don't know who or what I am most days, but I know that I am meant to make things. So that'll have to be enough. I love that. You are were kind enough to send us both copies of your book, which I have been like enormously enjoying. I was hoping to have it done uh, by the time we got here and I have not finished yet, but I, I'd love to hear you kind of give your quick synopsis of of what the book's about and, and why it's important to you and, and kind of what your, you know, kind of what your goal in writing it is. Mm, those are good questions. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised that you haven't finished it because it's a lot. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate that you even attempted. I have read it many times and still think, God, how do you move through this? Um, so it's a 31-day guidebook and memoir uh, called Restorative Grief, Embracing Our Losses Without Losing Ourselves. I wrote it. Um, it's the book I never wanted to write. And I say that lovingly because I worked so hard to write this book. But I lost my mom a little over five years ago. And in the prior years and subsequent years, we've lost so many people in our lives. Um, But when the pandemic hit the U.S., I really felt this pressure to recognize the unacknowledged grief that our entire globe was now going to be navigating for the next generation or two or three. And I personally refuse to live in a world where grief is not something we can address um, or where we constantly are minimizing it to just try and move on and uh, live, right, and try and exist or whatever it is. And so I feel very strongly about having conversations as uncomfortable as they are that give people an opportunity to learn more about their own grief story or about the way to support grievers around them. So this book is partly my story, and it's also based on, uh, it's 31 days broken out into the uh, five stages of grief. So initially the stages are denial anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, But I am 
not, I, I do not accept that. I don't, I don't see grief ending there and it never has for me because those were formulated, those um, steps were formulated for the terminally ill and I am alive and I'm still grieving. And so I need more than just five sta stages to try and work through. And so as I wrestled with my own losses and realized, oh, grief is not linear, it's cyclical. And not only that, there's restoration available for me, even in the midst of great loss, I am going to lean in and see what shakes loose and see who I become on the other side of every loss or every, um, you know, ambiguous moment where I'm experiencing grief as well. So Every day there are offerings from my own story, offerings from wisdom I found um, from other experts or from scriptures, uh, and it's framed in my understanding of, of religion and my faith as well. Um, but then it's, it's also designed with these beautiful tools that allow you to chew the meat and spit out the bones, so to speak, so that allow you that no matter where you're coming from, you can take a look at this and find movement for your own story with um, within your body, your mind, your spirit, and your soul. So the long way to say it's a, a dense book with a lot of techniques and tools that helped me that I am hopeful will help other people as well. Yeah, I, th I think you covered that so, so nicely. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a, it's a dense topic and it's rich and it's rife with so much complexity and implication. But I also think you did a, a really marvelous job of making it very accessible, but still still very personable. Like it, it really, I could feel kind of your own interaction as the mm. book progresses. Um, and so it really kind of has this, this sense of someone kind of moving along through these phases and stages with you. And, and as the writer in me loves your your keen willingness to kind of delve into uh, the comfort of the uncomfortable um, mm -hmm. and, and exploring that space. For me, art has always been about that. It's always been about uh, navigating these crepuscular depths of things that are <laughs> places of, of liminality and tension. And, and yeah. I, I, I just love the fact that you said, you know, it's the book that you never intended to write. Cause I, I think that yeah. resonates for me because so much of what happens in, in writing, but also I think is that is just what makes creativity kind of a mirror of, of being itself is we're, we're always finding things we're not looking for. And that's, that's kind of the miracle in the mundane is, is finding those things that that we never expected and seeing what is actually hiding there but with yeah. that being with that being said i think i'd love to hear you kind of take a step back because one of the things that that i loved that you said pretty early on in the book is that grief is not limited to to a death and i think that is an incredibly pertinent point because i think so often um the normative understanding of grief is just that it's when we've lose someone we love someone we're close to and and we're navigating this absence of uh, a loved one that has passed um, and certainly that is something that we have all faced and will continue to face but i think what i feel you getting at in the book and what i also think is important to mention especially at a time like ours where we are sociologically and culturally when we are in the midst of a pandemic and so much of our our normalcy is now gone and we're all dealing with these different kinds of losses and absences i think now is as good a time as any and probably a more important time than any to understand grief and how we deal with it and how we reconcile it and how we confront it so I wonder if you could kind of take a step back and say a little bit more about just what grief is and, and how you yeah. see that play out yeah, absolutely. It's such a good question because they've, you know, they've identified uh, over 40 different types of grief that where in my experience, most people don't know how to acknowledge what we call ambiguous or disenfranchised grief. So the loss of a job, an expectation that's unmet, breaking something valuable to you. We have grief that can come up in all kinds of different arenas in our lives. And if we are willing to look at those places, we can find movement. We can find some healing there, right? 
But the reality is most of us are not trained to do that, nor are we interested in looking for what might be difficult or painful in those in those moments, those mundane moments, right? Where we'd rather just say like, oh, it was no big deal. If we broke up, it's fine. We're moving on. I'm going to date someone new. Well, the truth is you committed a part of your heart to this relationship. You had expectations in this relationship. You had visions for the future, whether you you know, really want to admit it or not, you had a lot riding on this going in a certain direction. And now that it hasn't, there's going to be grief attached to so many different parts of that. Um, and one of the ways that I like to describe that is a little bit vulnerable, but I have shared this story. So I had a miscarriage in 2020, right at the beginning of the year. And my husband and I have had fertility issues for a long time. Our daughter was a miracle. And we're waiting for the next one. But um, at the time, I was also reading Becoming by Michelle Obama. And in her book, she describes her own miscarriage. And the way she describes it is uh, just as an act of science. It's a natural occurrence. And in my experience, that is true. I believe like my body knows what it's doing. And while there can be errors or mistakes or, or illness or whatever that goes wrong, um, it makes sense that my body would vacate a pregnancy that's not necessarily stable. However, the emotional attachment that I had because of my past and my story that was attached to this was just so heavy that it became a source of, that obviously was griefing, it was grief laden for me and yet very easy to dismiss from someone else's perspective. So disenfranchised grief and ambiguous grief are those areas in our lives where we recognize um, this hurts, but I don't know why. And I have found that often it's because there's grief attached. And another really good example of that, I, I live in Oregon. And um, as we're quote unquote, going right back into this pandemic, right? Um, my, our governor just I can't remember if she declared it, she mandated it, whoever, whatever she said, um, that kids in schools will be wearing masks in the fall, or she directed it, I don't know. But uh, our district wasn't leaning toward that, and I'm watching everyone's reactions toward the new masking rules again, having the exact same reaction from a year ago. And as I'm witnessing it, all I see is grief manifesting left and right. We had an expectation that school year would go direction A, and now it's going direction B, and now it's going direction C, and it just keeps changing. And there's so much instability that grief is just cropping up, but not being acknowledged because there's so much anger kind of hiding it away. So that is how, long story of how I would define grief. I love that. I, I think because um, what I think I heard you say most clearly, at least to me, was that grief at its most basic is uh, the confrontation with a lapse of expectation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when you cast it in such light, yes, it, it kind of simplifies it, but, but also it makes it kind of more palpable as to kind of why we, we come up against so many of these places of, of tension or turmoil that, that we don't quite always have a name for um, right. or don't always fully understand because what we're we don't recognize it as grief but but in all actuality it's it is because we've we've yeah. had this this intentionality this expectation this this attachment to an expectation and Absolutely. Uh, we've been confronted by the loss of that it's it's this um this palpable presence of absence yeah, it really is. I It just becomes something that we're so used to permanence, especially when we're little and we've never had to wrestle with the idea of impermanence, the, the concept that things come to an end. Um, you know, like for so many of us who are fortunate, maybe high school graduation is the first taste of impermanence, right? This emotional upheaval where everything I've known is different and we don't, necessarily know how to navigate that. And so when it's a big landmark, there are structures, right? There's people on college campuses saying, welcome freshmen, this is going to be really hard. Here's some ways to navigate it. Here's some ways to deal with it. But maybe they're not using the word, you're grieving your childhood. <laughs> so that that idea that we can see our losses as an expectation that were just unmet 
is you're right. It makes it so much more palpable. It gives us permission to lean into it a little closer without this fear that, oh gosh, grief is contagious. If I'm a near a grieving person or near a scary, sad situation, I'm going to get some grief on me. No, we, we have this ability to press into ourselves and say, well, I've navigated disappointment before. I can do it again. I actually brought this tool with me the last time I navigated disappointment. And I'm going to bring that and see if it applies here. And now, of course, that doesn't minimize the intensity of emotion around grief, but it does make it more, uh, more approachable, just like you said. I love that. I want to return to something you, you said earlier, because I think that that's important to understand, especially if, if we're kind of helping people kind of understand all these places where, where they have maybe unexpectedly and unknowingly already rubbed up against grief or where they've already been touched by it. Um, you said early on that it, it's cyclical. I, I wonder if you could, you could kind of lean into that a little bit more. What does, what does that mean for you and, and how to, how would one see that kind of play out? What's the cyclicality of grief? Cause I think, you know, a lot of times I have, I have some friends that are kind of involved in this field. And one of the things that we've talked about is especially in regards to, you know, the famous or now infamous stages of grief, there's, it's almost yeah. presented in this linearity, like it's this linear progression. It's step right. one, step two, and it, it gives this this illusion that possibly leads to a kind of delusion that that it works that way, that it's just this forward motion. But I love that you said it's it's cyclical because it it already says that that there's this ebb and flow, there's this rhythm, there's this rising and falling, this returning and coming back. And tell me tell me more about that. It's so important to recognize because otherwise we get in this headspace of, okay, I'm angry, so I must be on step two of, oh, I'm bargaining. Okay, great. And bargaining is easily misunderstood. It's like the negotiation stage with God. God, if you'll just spare them, I promise I'll start attending church. God, if you just intervene, I will give my money to the, you know what I mean? We were watching The Simpsons the other day and Bart and Lisa are intervening, bargaining with God to try and get out of an interaction with their dad that they didn't want to go into. And I was like, there it is. There's bargaining. We've made it so lighthearted that we don't realize that it's really a source of deep wounding and uh, recognition that we don't have control over so much. So the idea that grief is linear dismisses the fact that we can have a resurgence of anger 20 years after the initial loss that something we encounter can trigger us where we haven't maybe addressed the loss in, let's say, our emotional toolbox. It, that gives us permission to to revisit what we may have overlooked or not seen in the past when it comes to loss. And so I think what we're often looking for is an ending point. Like, is there a day that this won't hurt the way that it hurts? or as much as it hurts. I mean, truly when my mom passed away, there were moments that I was trying to be very aware, like take a step back and observe myself in those moments and almost detach. I'm actually quite good at it. Detach from my emotions and just observe them um, and try to not judge them, but become curious about them. And I would realize I'm like, oh, here I'm back in anger again. Oh my gosh, I'm back here at depression. And we have to be free to recognize and give ourselves permission to feel whatever we're feeling in the moment that it rises and to believe that it just is a one stop at each step is it's just naive it's just an early understanding of grief and and a desire to avoid the impermanence <laughs> and a desire to avoid the vulnerability of this is always going to hurt but while grief will always exist we still expand around it. We expand our understanding of ourselves. We expand our understandings of our loss of life on a grander scale. And we become more, we become bigger in ourselves. We have more capacity. And so when that grief does run back around, you look at it from a different point of view or from a different person, like 10 years down the road, I'm a different person than today. And I'm hoping that I look at my grief differently in 10 years than I do today. But the idea being, as you are finding yourself cycling back to maybe denial over and over again, or anger over and over again, that as you are working through it, you're identifying 
tips and tools and techniques and um, supports that can actually come alongside you to help you do the work where you didn't do it before, or maybe where it was never quite um, feeling comfortable enough to look at again. And so the idea being you get to a place that with grief being cyclical that you can say, oh, I, I remember being here five years ago. What worked for me then was this, and I'm going to respond quicker to a bout of depression over my loss now than I would when I first lost my mom. So that that nature of grief being so fluid, it's the same thing we feel, right? Anybody can feel, gosh, you can feel all five stages of grief in inside of five minutes, five minutes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What I love about what you said is I think you're, you're pinpointing a really interesting paradox, um, something that almost seems contradictory within the experience of grief in that there's the cyclicality, there's a fluidity. But at the same time, I feel like you're also pinpointing that there is a degree of, of something stable and sure in, in the process. And there's a surety of motion, a, a, a rhythmic cyclicality uh, of something kind of solid within the fluidity. Um, and it, it, I, it reminds me, um, of something I read from, um, John O'Donohue. He's a, um, an Irish, uh, philosopher and poet. Let, I, I'd love to read it to you and maybe you can respond back to, cause I, I think Please. it kind of relates to, to what I hear you talking about. He says that grief has a structure. It knows the direction and it will take you through. It is amazing how time and again, one of the most consoling factors in experience is that each experience has a sure structure. This is never obvious to us while we are going through something, but when we look back, we will be able to pick out the path offered itself to us. I love John O'Donohue. I feel like he understands me in ways that I don't understand myself sometimes. And I like, that is one of the greatest losses um, that he passed so young, but that it's beautiful because you're right. There is a, I love how that draws a, a line through it that not because it's linear, but because we're not the first to experience it. We're not the last. And it is so much bigger than our understanding of ourselves. I think in grief, as we are learning to hold space for ourselves and what we need, we become more powerful in holding space for other people as well. And that, to me, looks like recognizing that there are some similarities to grief as we carry through and in our ability to sit with other people and stay silent and just give them an opportunity to be heard we're going to find healing in our own process they are going to find healing by just being given an opportunity to speak without being corrected or taught or talked down to or dismissed or whatever it is but yeah he that is such a beautiful way to to explain this is nothing new under the sun and yet it's new to you. Yeah. It's almost like you're discovering a world that's, that's always been there, but uh, until this point is known to you. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, like I was saying earlier, you don't necessarily have to ever wrestle with impermanence as a kid unless, or maybe you don't even have the cognitive framework or ability to understand. Yes. Impermanence actually means gone. You know, my daughter was a year and a half old when my mom died and I was, I was devastated for all the reasons. And yet as she, oh, sorry, as she has gotten older, I've been checking in with her. Hey, what do you remember about your Nana? What do you, do you remember this song? She wrote this song for you. This one that we've always sang to you. It's from her. It's a gift. Or at one point she bought a swimsuit that was five sizes too big, but she wore it for the last two summers. And I was able to say that it's a gift from your Nana. Do you remember her? What do you have? And her understanding has changed over time because my grandmother, so her great-grandmother is still with us. And she got confused as a child thinking, well, isn't that my Nana? It's not, kiddo. Your Nana is with, is in heaven. You know, she's not here and we don't get to see her, but she's with us. And trying to understand that at a little child's age is complicated. But as we've gotten older, as she's gotten older, I've had to direct those conversations because she's having revelations, right? She's having moments of recognizing, oh, your mom died. What happened? I mean, yeah. you hear this little six-year-old say, you know what? I hate cancer. 
And I'm like, you've experienced it, but you had no idea what you were experiencing. Like you've observed cancer take someone, but you didn't understand that's what it was. And so for her to make connections now, I'm just like, I'm trying to help very carefully <laughs> help her understand yeah. impermanence without yeah. like this, freaking her out. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't like a, a goldfish moment or, or pet hamster. This is, this is obviously no. quite, quite a lot bigger. The one thing I wanted to ask you is uh, I remember you talking about, you actually came up with this book and, and got into grief counseling because you were unable to find uh, to help you with your church and things to, to get yeah. through grief. Is that correct? So yeah. can you, can you me through that? Like how is, is, is this a individual church or is this the church as a whole is uncomfortable? Um, yeah. Good it, question. <laughs> I would say as a whole, my individual church is full of, I mean, we've been there for 12 years, something like that. And they're amazing. There are people that have seen me where I'm at over the last decade or so and acknowledged that I am a tough cookie that takes things head on. So I don't shy away when things are uncomfortable. I think they're worth digging into and finding like pressure makes a diamond, right? So I lean into yeah. things and think like, let's apply the pressure. What's going to come out of this could crumble. It could break to pieces or it could be sparkly and valuable and absolutely crucial. So I, um, in that, when my mom passed, recognized almost immediately, okay, no one here with the very few, with very few exceptions, no one here knows what to do with me. And I'm in leadership, right? I was leading worship at the time. So I was oh, almost wow. every, every other Sunday I was singing and, and leading the church in music. I was part of the women's ministry. So I was running conferences and setting everything up. Um, for that, I was mentoring young adults. I was working in children's ministry. I was doing all the things and I stopped. I was like, cool, I'm done. I need space. And that alone in the church world is complicated, but my family, my church family was so gracious and said, absolutely. Of course you're done. That makes sense. Do what you need to do. But as time went on, um, I reflected back a lot on my loss, but also um, my very good friend's loss. So her husband died. It'll be about nine years ago. And that was my husband's best friend. And so when he passed away, it was kind of the same thing. The church knew what to do right away, you know, meal trains and yeah. someone coming to clean your house and take care of your kids or whatever. But that fades so quickly. And I've been walking with her and the kids for nine years. And in fact, her mom, who also recently just passed, said, you know, you're the only one. She said it so many times. You're the one who stayed. You're the one who calls. You're the one who doesn't care if she doesn't respond because you still call. And that to me was so important because I got to be on the other side of watching her process. What, where is everyone? What is yeah. happening? And so fast forward, knowing that about my friends and my, my community as a whole, and knowing that especially Christianity just doesn't have a framework for loss. It, it, it well, it does, but yeah, modern day. Sense, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Cause like in yeah. the immediate sense for sure. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. The long-term support, the long-term ability to recognize that someone's world is upside down and they're trying to understand it is really, really challenging. And so I, I'm pretty insistent upon also when people are grieving and they're connected to a church, not sending them directly to the pastoral staff because pastors are not trained as grief counselors. They're not therapists. Some of them might have dual like degrees or expertise areas, but on the whole, that's not their wheelhouse. It's, and it's so, more, uh, more clinical, right? It's not necessarily a, yes. uh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, you think of, I mean, any pastor who's been one for any amount of time has probably officiated a funeral. Does that mean they are the person that you walk up to? No, but we think so because when you're getting married, that's the person that you talk to before, right? And in, in the church yeah. world, it's so centered around this pastor, which just makes me crazy because not only do you see severe and hot and fast, heavy pastor burnout, right? Just people- yeah falling to pieces left and right, but it completely removes the responsibility of the rest of us who are involved in the church world to actually show up for each other and be in relationship. And I don't know, be vulnerable and real with one another when life gets vulnerable and real. So this book for me was my response to that to say, not only am I a safe 
place for you to fall apart. That doesn't mean I'm going to be your person because I can't be that for every person that comes along. But that does mean, hey, in and outside of the church, there are incredible resources and support systems that you can build. Let me show you how I have done it. Let's see if it applies or helps you in some way or form, because I don't want someone to feel like, cool, I had to leave the church because of my grief and it was too much. I can't, I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have said, the church didn't know what to do with me. So I just left. I'm like, that's the, that's the opposite. That's the opposite. Yeah, it shouldn't be that way. And and this isn't to like knock on, this isn't like a Christianity versus Buddhism. Because in my (laughs) mind, I was thinking about this uh, coming up uh, as as the interview's coming up. Uh, How many times have you been, uh, maybe you, because you know, you're trained to, but uh, how many times have, have, have us, have we been faced with someone who is, who is grieving and you just don't know what to do. You just, it, it's, it's almost like feeling right. powerless. Like you, like, I, you know, what can I do? Can I give you a hug? Like, I, you know, like you said, what do we really, I think not just in, in a uh, sense, but I think we as people, the way we've uh, society has, we've separated ourselves from grief and, and from pain and from sorrow. Um, Rather than kind of sit and, and sit with it, um, I, I think that's kind of led us to a point where we are so disconnected from the actual status of it. You know what I mean? Or the actual uh, workings of it. So it's hard to, as hard as it is to be somebody in grief, it, it, it is, I think, hard for us to see someone through something and just not know what to do. Absolutely. That's that's a big part of my work that I do with coaching clients as well and in the Restorative Grief Project, which was kind of a a group I created to see if what I was writing about was meaningful to anyone but me, Uh, was let me teach you how to hold space for yourself. And if you're a grief supporter, let me teach you how to hold space for other people that doesn't make assumptions, that doesn't offer platitudes, regardless of your background or your belief system, that doesn't... um, One of the big parts of being a grief supporter is recognizing that that person doesn't necessarily have the same assumptions or conclusions that you have. So when you offer a platitude, no matter your background, you might be assuming this person believes in an afterlife. You might be assuming this person believes that, uh, oh gosh, my, here's my pet peeve. Heaven gained an angel. Don't worry. And I, every time I'm like, do you believe that it makes me want to dive into a theological debate? Like that's really, what is that predicated on? So I digress. But the the knowledge that we can gain from coming alongside one another with that oh admission that we have no control. I am powerless in the face of your loss. I am. But I'm here and I'm willing to learn or to show up or to stick with you or continue to check in. And And I think that's Part of what we need to learn as grief supporters too is learn what capacity we have. There's one thing that I've always appreciated about my community is that if if a meal train goes up and there's 30 days, right? The caveat is always given of you don't have to do this out of obligation. In fact, don't do this out of actual Thank you. Thank you. Desire. Yeah. The like obligation out of your heart. Of, yeah. Like you feel yes. this. That's why you should be here. Right. I have I have a friend who had surgery and she, her family put together a meal train and I didn't know she was having surgery, but I signed up for Monday and I'm like, I am so grateful that I have capacity to jump on board right now and take a meal as simple as it seems. Those are big deals. And you know, we've got, (laughs) if it's a stress for you, don't do it because that adds more pressure to the receiver as well. So, you know, and grievers need no pressure added. We've got enough that we create for ourselves. So. Yeah, I, I love that we kind of went in in this particular direction uh, conversationally because a lot of this is was some of the things that that really struck a chord with me early on when when I was reading the book, and so I, I would love to probe just a little bit deeper here. I there's a couple things that you wrote that I think are are worth uh, bringing in, especially with with what we're talking about right now, you wrote that the church as an entity does not appear to serve grievers well beyond the initial loss, presenting hope without holding space for pain. This idea of, of a church being the only place you can find community when you're grieving is not true. 
But because in my experience, we have put so much pressure on the social structure of a church that only meets on Sunday, it's cognitive dissonance, right? We're only showing up on services where we can feel served, but we're not necessarily showing up in a way that is available to serve others unless there's a formal team or a formal meeting or a, an organization around it. And one of the things when um, I was dealing with my friend's loss early on was her kids. And there is this amazing program called Grief Share that you can purchase the content and people in the church can teach it. And it's kind of a small group setting where you can walk through um, your losses. And that's actually really effective for a lot of people. Me, not so much. But when I was trying to find resources for the kiddos, um, I asked our church, hey, why aren't we doing grief share anymore? And they flat out said, we are if you do it. You do it. You can do it. Like it, Not in a minis- uh, dismissive way, but in a an empowering way of go do this. Yeah. And it was, but it was a formula. It was still this, wait a minute, how do we not know each other well enough to look around and say, you have kids that are grieving? Well, we're a church of 500 people and there are eight to 15 people I can think of right now who have either experienced that type of loss or who have um, taught or who are counselors, you know, finding that we actually know one another and can engage outside of expecting a formula or a, a service or a, I don't know, something that's structured. That's one thing I know from being in church leadership for so long that it's really hard when the people you're trying to lead are only interested if it's a, you know, at at 10 a.m. on this day, I'll come, I'll be present, and then I'll leave. And that's just not what the church was meant to do. That's not what Jesus was teaching back in the day. He was teaching family and community and gathering around and actually knowing one another and what we need. So that, that I think is where we just, it's just a restructuring that's needed. And yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because I was Grief talking about it. a great place to start. <laughs> it's, and, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, if nothing else, it's a connection point because everybody goes through it at some point, like you were saying. Right. Uh, I, I remember talking to my friend. He's, um, uh, I was, because I was actually asking you, trying to help uh, do what I can. I, I don't have a, a huge network, but I feel like I have, I have somewhat of a connection. I can try to help you with your book. And I was talking to a friend that uh, he actually works a lot with uh, church plants. And, uh, you know, so he's, He's well connected. He knows a lot of people. He talks to a lot of people. And I was asking questions of him, and he was like, "Man, what a good topic!" Because he's like, "I've been, uh, you know, in the church in some form, like administratively. Uh, you know, he's he's done the same kind of things, led services, led prayers, led groups, led this, led that." And uh, he said, "What a good, great place to start because it's just," he said, "Other than and and I'm I'm a firefighter. We have a similar thing, uh, mule train kind of thing when somebody gets hurt or or someone's family member dies or something happens. Yeah. Uh, we all do that, and." Um, Honestly, I think it's actually from the church to 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 be 100. You know, percent I think that's where the idea came from initially. But uh, he said, "What a great place to start because we just don't have the capacity to do this for people." And he's like, "It's it's he's he always says uh, he's a younger guy, but like he he seems very old soul. He's like, you know, it breaks my heart that the church can't handle people in pain." And he's like, "That's that's what it's for. Like that's why we're supposed to be here. This doesn't make yeah. any sense." I love the fact that that you that you point out. Um, and I think you, you make it pretty clear in the book too, as I read it, that, you know, just as not only are, is the church or a lot of our organized religious institutions kind of falling down in holding space for grief. I mean, you, you seem to point out that just as human beings, we were not particularly good at holding space for our own grief and holding space for others that grief. So I think that's, that's a really important thing to point out because it's, there's a lot of people that have found a lot of care and support in, in their particular traditions and can lose faith in those traditions and those, those observances because of this big instance of falling down. But it's something that runs the gamut across the board. But I also think what makes it pertinent to probably an audience like this, and and even myself, I I grew up uh, a pastor's son. So I've certainly seen how you would think an organization like the church, whose, whose central figurehead is a person, a spiritual teacher that died in 
an excruciating and brutal execution. <laughs> right. um, and, and there is no resurrection without a death and, and burial. You would think we would have a better understanding of that and see that played out in those contexts. Um, and it seems like the, the church has been fantastic at, at acknowledging, you know, Good Friday and wonderfully bandwagon-esque in their acknowledgement and recognition of, you know, Resurrection Sunday, but they, it seems that where they really have a difficulty, but I think it's just as people as a whole have difficulty with that, you know, that, that holy Saturday, that day of absence and loss where there's, where there's nothing and everything is unclear and, and ambiguous. Um, but with that being said, I think there's a lot of people in this audience. And like I said, myself included, who, who don't belong to any traditions who, who haven't found, you know, what they're looking for in, in those spaces. Um, but they still need to figure out how to hold space for themselves and find spaces of community in which they can provide that space and they can be provided that space. So, so I think that's great that we, we kind of move in that direction. And I'd love to hear you talk about what that looks like. How do we, how do we hold space together as a community of human beings, not about spiritual practitioners of a particular tradition but what does it mean for us to genuinely hold space for ourselves and to provide that same sense of space and safety and security for those that we care about and those that we come into contact with just as people on on the ground yeah. you know willing to get our hands dirty with our own daily being yeah it's a really good question i think it, it, first, it harkens back to the oxygen mask, right? Take care of yourself first. You can't show up and hold space for someone if you are a mess in your own right. And often you'll see that happen when someone like a matriarch or a patriarch in a family dies, everyone's grieving different relationships to that person. And so, yes, you're going to be in, in one another's way and it's going to get messy. But at the same time, if you're doing the work for yourself, finding what it is that you need to support you through processing your loss, it's going to show up in a positive way when you interact with those family members. Um, but I think for me, learning to lament, learning what that actually looks like and what that means is really important uh, because it allows you to validate the experiences that you're walking through. So regardless of your faith tradition or how you were raised or what you practice on a daily basis when things are not full of grief, um, your ability to recognize and see your responses, your thoughts, and then challenge those thoughts gives you a lot of authority back that feels very distant from us in grief when we're struggling with loss. Um, and as a, as a grief coach, I'm trained in cognitive behavioral techniques and reframing is one that um, is so powerful. It's very easily misconstrued. And I think the um, <laughs> generation, my generation certainly has run away with it and turned it into toxic positivity, which is just damaging on all fronts. But the ability to reframe your perspective means actually acknowledging that your perspective exists and it's real and it's okay that it's not pink and shiny and purple, you know, glittery and happy all the time. The willingness to be uncomfortable and to lament, to actually feel those feelings and let it out, to be guttural, to write about it, to throw paint at a wall, whatever it is. For me, it's moving my body. If you see me running, you can be damn sure I'm exhausted and sad because there's no other reason in my mind to be running. And this is why I run every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I saw that and I'm like, good for you. <laughs> so important. I can't do it because it hurts so much. I'm just I'm not, I'm better at, you know, punching bags. But the idea being to know what you need to engage your body or engage your heart, your mind and your soul and your spirit and to, to move, find a little bit of movement in that. That's where we come back to life. When you are stagnant, you are, I don't know if you're fully alive. I mean, there's stillness, which is important, but I still think that stillness is moving us toward who we want to become. I think stagnation is so different and harmful for us. So when we are finding life in these areas that have fallen asleep or taken a back seat, it means we're finding a little bit of wiggle room. What 
what is here that is stuck that I need to find movement in so I can actually bring some life and some, um, it just truly brings some vibration back to this part of my body or this part of my mind that needs recognition that it was created with movement in mind. Um, and that's, it's, it's funny, I'm going to ramble here, so I'll try to wrap it up, but <laughs> that's why I love the metaphor of the ocean when it comes to grief and, uh, being mindful that the ocean is very deadly and dangerous and um, has claimed many lives, I still say finding movement means that when the waves come, you will no longer fear that you're going to drown. You'll learn how to tread water. And that that's where we come back to life. When you're treading water, when you can I was just telling my daughter because we were swimming for like a week on vacation together and she was in the pool all day, every day. And there would be moments when she was panicking, like, oh, I'm, I'm, and she can swim. I'm in the deep. And I'm like, relax and float. You are calm. You are in control. You are okay. You have to res stop resisting right now and just relax a little bit so that you can breathe and catch your breath back and you'll be okay. And she was, you know, finding like, oh, wait a minute, I can float on my back. Oh, I can pause for a moment and just tread water. Okay. Okay. I'm not so tired that I'm going to drown. I can move forward again. And yeah. it's such a simple way to describe it. It feels very simplistic, but to me, it's a very big part of. It's really powerful because I think what I hear you saying and all that is um, it's, it's the simplicity of holding space for ourselves in and just even the minor acknowledgements of what brings us towards vitality and life and however that shows up and a moving towards it and moving looks different for for every person it may not even be a literal physical movement it's right. it's recognizing the little sparks of magic that you come across in unexpected places and, and being willing to to lean into them one of the things that that I have always been a big proponent of in in creative practices and and it's so nice to hear you describe it that way because I feel like that's exactly what you're talking about in this kind of moment of grief is I always encourage everyone no matter their medium or their format to really lean hard into your curiosity and yes. what sparks your interest regardless of whether it feels pertinent or logical or sensical because I feel like one of the things that we've lost sight of as a culture is that that ability to be idle in a way that moves us towards something life affirming. We get yes. so caught up in the metrics of the metrics of being alive, the analytics of daily living, where what's moving us towards a goal, what's moving us towards a particular level of productivity or output when then it's just Num living becomes a numeric game and there's no life and that's stagnant. So you're, you're almost kind of saying like there's a way of moving that is closer to stagnation and there's a way of being still that is far closer to movement. Yeah. And I think that's really important and I can see how that plays into that. And I think that's a great way to hold space for yourself is realizing if there's something that's bringing you some kind of spark of, of, liveliness to to lean into it whatever it may be whether it's you know uh, uh maybe you've some reason you get this random idea to start reading manga or doing crossword puzzles you know <laughs> whatever's lean into that there's something in there that will probably give you exactly what you need if nothing else it will give you the breathing room the space yeah. that you need to step away from something else and I, I think that's really really powerful and really poignant and that's a very simplistic way or and i mean that in a positive way of of, yeah. of figuring out how to hold space for yourself because I, I think that that phrase itself is beautiful and the poet in me loves that but sometimes you know the the more practical minded people just go like, well, what does that mean? You know, like, what does that really yeah, mean? It's a little I think, sometimes. <laughs> right. And I think that's a beautiful way to put it. Well, in this period of darkness, 
what specks of light can you see and move towards them and don't be concerned as to what that light is, what it looks like, or whether it makes sense that the light is there. Just move towards it and, and enjoy it while it's there. And when it fades, move towards the next one and you just keep yeah. moving. I think I wish I had made a note of it, but you said something beautiful in, in one of your, you know, kind of recommendations on that, that, um, uh, something like just remember to to give importance to your breath. That is all the work mm-hmm. that is needed for today, and that hits so hard for me because I'm I'm a workaholic. I'm just constantly striving, and it some days it just never feels like enough. And I think just that beautiful reminder is kind of right in line with this, where it's like, hey, some days. That's all the work that you need to do is just remember mm-hmm. how important your your breath is. I, I wrote in, I, um, I think, uh, uh, one particular blog post that sometimes the most courageous and brave act that you can do is getting out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Yeah, I don't I feel like we deserve more credit for that. Maybe that sounds <laughs> sad, but I really think so because it would be so easy not to. You could have collapsed. You could have caved in. Every day we are faced with two options of caving in or carrying on. And any yeah. step you take towards carrying on deserves to be lauded. And so I think that's that's just really beautiful the way the way you put mm-hmm. that. It's acknowledging that you got out of bed today. So you're yeah. already winning. You're yeah, already win. winning. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that because I think unless you've experienced that feeling of, I could lay here and not care. I could lay here and do nothing. Unless you've actually been in a place, then to say, oh, you got out of bed, good job. It feels like pandering. It feels like it's really easy, like that's ridiculous. How is that an accomplishment? Well, clearly you're not the person who's had compassion created within you by feeling the depressive state of, does it matter if I get out of bed? Will anyone miss me? Um, One of my coaching clients, I actually sent a message. Uh, she was one of my mom's very close friends, but she was also married and her husband passed away suddenly after they got married. And he asked me permission essentially to stay in bed. And I was like, are you disappointing anyone? Well, maybe I'm like, who, who are you disappointing? Cause that was the, the thing, right? I need to get out of bed. Why do you need to get out of bed? Are you, do you need to pee? Like get out of bed to do that. But <laughs> do you need to eat? Go eat or bring it back to you. But whose expectations are you failing to meet mm. right now? Because it sounds like you need rest. It sounds like you need a lack of obligations. And I I have said this many times when I've struggled with insomnia. I, I mean, over the years, it's come and gone. But when I'm actively grieving, I'm much more aware of it because my insomnia will re- reoccur. And one of the easiest ways for me to, to just cope and not address it is to put a dumb sitcom that I love on in the background and just listen to it as I fall asleep because my mind otherwise will continue to try and process my losses in my dreams and it wakes me up and it's awful. But your willingness to acknowledge like the importance of those simple life-giving moments of breathing deeply or hell, exhaling and holding an empty breath and seeing how long you can do that for whatever it is that might seem kind of ridiculous, but is actually so life affirming, like your choice to stay in bed, your choice to call someone and say, we're done. You're not, you have no access to me anymore. Like I'm drawing a hard boundary because you're just a jerk every time we talk or whatever it is, that active choice that actually serves you really well. It's leaning hard into our ability to be who we need in our lives. Like we have to be for ourselves what we need first and foremost. And before we can gain anything from any relationship that isn't just putting expectations that are unfair, right? Like I love to say, I I need me first or I like me first. Mm -hmm. So anything you like about me is just extra. (laughs) Yeah, You you can't pour from an empty cup. I think that's one of the analogies I like to say with that too, is you have to have something inside to give. You can't just be hollow and, and, and be there for everybody. You have to have a welling from within. What I love about that is it's, it's acknowledging that there is something, there's something very practical 
in even those most minor things. And it is very pragmatic and, and it's, it's, it can seem ambiguous, but it's, it's actually, it's, it's not so much that it's ambiguous. It's just that it's, it's that simple. It's about being pragmatic about what is working. What, like you said, what is serving me well right now? Maybe, maybe a day in bed would serve me better than forcing myself out and, and acknowledging right. that and being willing to move in that way when necessary. And so it's, it's, it's the practical kind of utility of, I guess, bringing it back home to holding space for yourself in whatever way it needs to that serves you best. But I I suppose with, with that being said, when, when you're able to do that and you can do that, what does it look like to pour your cup out once you have filled yourself? Like, how do you then bring what you have given to yourself to someone else? Mm. It's really easy to think, oh, don't worry, griever. I've gone through this before. And to um, what we call center your story over theirs. And we do it in this desire to mitigate discomfort and to show people that they're not alone. But the truth is like, no, they are the only ones who've ever experienced this because they are unique individuals. And while your story can give you the empathy to relate and they may want to hear your perspective or hear what you've gone through. We have to be really mindful. And I think being able to open space for yourself creates that mindfulness as well around how do I show up for someone and stay quiet and wait to be asked for input. And that's, that to me is really what it comes down to is, is showing up and just saying I'm here and I've got plenty of resources when, or if you want them, I've got, plenty of anecdotes to share, but for the most part, I'm just here for you and whatever that looks like. So not, not just showing up and saying, well, I'm the expert now, or I've got so much experience. You should learn from me. No, actually I have so much experience in loss that what I have to offer is only going to be useful when you're ready for it. Otherwise it's me showing up with a bunch of books about grief, right? And you, me forgetting that you can't really focus on the written word right now because your brain doesn't know how to do that in grief. Like it's completely common to lose your ability to truly read when you are grieving. And I, I can't remember if I wrote about it in the book or not, but I would carry a book around with me uh, right after my mom passed away, just so it looked like I was reading and I would try to read. But for the most part, it was just a filter, just a, a wall between me and other people. Cause most people will not interrupt someone who's reading and I could be left alone. So that, that ability to create space for someone looks like just being present and quiet, you know? Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's really powerful. I think that that adds to uh, probably deepens the, uh, what, what could be the issue at hand of why it's so hard to uh, be with somebody who's grieving or, or to be there for somebody who's grieving is because I hate to say it, but a lot of times, just I think humanity in general, we we don't know what it's like to really be there for each other in general. Right. Um, and then when you turn on the heat of of hey, somebody really needs you, somebody really needs you to be there. Um, it leads to all these weird things, like those uh, you know trying to be um, almost grandiose about being there or or making a spectacle of you being there for someone. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of it comes to, and you know, don't get me wrong. Some people are just jerks and that's just how they do things. But, sure. uh, largely the, I, I think a lot of times it's one of those, uh, you know, Ricky Bobby moments. You just don't know what to do with your hands. So you're just like, <laughs> you're forever stuck, you know, like, what do I do? Um, yep. so yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, this is a really good conversation. I'm so glad that, that we were able to have you on. Uh, I didn't want to hold you up. Did you say you had to go? I've got to get going to get my daughter. I'm sorry because this no, is no, a good no, conversation. Thank you so much for your patience. Uh, oh, definitely gosh. would love to have you back on. Um, before we uh, part ways, I just wanted to make sure we get all your uh, links and anything you had to share. I know you got the restorative grief coming out. Um, I, I will get obviously the uh, the everything kind of went sideways here, so we'll we'll do the giveaway uh, in the near future if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, yep. But yeah, do you have anything you wanted to to throw out there? Any book signings? Anything like that? You know, I'm still working on events because I'm navigating COVID as graciously and calmly as I can. Um, but I have been showing up over on Clubhouse, having some conversations like this as well. Um, and my signal or my my handle on all the social media stuff is just at Mandy Capehart. 
And my book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble or through my website, mandykpart.com. Every outlet of repute will have it. (laughs) All of it. Hopefully, yes, exactly. And then you can, if someone is interested in the Restorative Brief Project, that is a free and private um, group coaching platform um, community that I created on Facebook right now that it's very, it's very beautiful because it's, it, there's so little expectation. Um, <laughs> I basically just tell everyone who comes in, if you just need to be here and observe, do it. If you want to contribute, do it. If you have something to say that's unhelpful, keep it to yourself. Other than that, let's navigate this together. Let's ask questions and let's have uncomfortable conversations in a way that there's an ability for us to find non-judgmental curiosity and, and just compassion for ourselves as we process. So that's, uh, that's available too. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on. And and again, thank you for your patience. Uh, by far, uh, one of the coolest people I've ever heard talk about grief and, uh, can't wait to see your (laughs) podcast come back on. Uh, Dwayne, did there anything you wanted to have wrap up? Any final Uh, statements? I just appreciate your time and, and patience. I know this was a little clunky, but I, I love everything that you've, you've said. It was very, very enjoyable. And uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I, you know, when it comes to clunky, my good friend and former boss used to say, blessed are the flexible for we will not break. So I am, <laughs> I stand by that. It didn't bother me. <laughs> We are bending so much. Thank you again so much. Have a good one. (laughs) You too. Take care, guys.